Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Morning, friends. How are you doing today? My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching online, you're at home. It's great to have you here today on this Memorial Day. Last week, we celebrated baptisms for those of you that were with us. And what a joy to see so many people make that decision to say there is a life change that has happened in me. Uh, To jump, not jump into a tank, maybe not, but to step into. They did come out like wet dogs. Some of them I got soaking wet, and I didn't mind at all. Uh, so if you, would, if you were inspired by that and you say, I've never done adult baptism and you would love to jump in, email Dan at South Fellowship. I'd love to cause him a chunk of problems with emails to reply to. We'll be doing another baptism service in October. And I'd just love to make it more of a, a couple of times a year rhythm where we see people celebrating that moment of life change. So that was last week. This week, I feel like I became a little bit more Coloradan. Just a little bit more, I went on my first uh, mountain biking adventure. Uh, So I am going to become one of these people that has a bike more expensive than their car hanging off the back of their car, which seems wise, and uh, and it was a joy to get out there. And the reason I mention it is this, one of the things I love is how relationships form over activities, and that's especially true for guys. So during this summer season, one of the things we're going to be talking about is our groups of circles. We're going to be inviting you to take things that you love, deep passions. It could be something like mountain biking. It could be something like playing golf. It could be something like studying the Bible together. It could be almost anything and say, we'd love to invite you to get together with people that are interested in the same things. And so we'll be doing some signups, but we're still looking for people to run some of those groups. We have quite a few already. Uh, And I'm super excited to bring down the average age of the mountain biking group, but also bring down the average ability to mountain bike of the mountain biking group. Uh, And I'm sure I'll cause some some humor uh, with crashes and wipeouts and whatever. But so far, I've been looked after well. So if you'd like to jump into that. We're in a series that we started last week called Build a Bigger Table. We'll be walking through the books Luke and Acts together. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's fine. Luke is one of the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus' life. Uh, And Acts is a book written by the same author about the early church movement. Now, this same author, with those two books combined, wrote more of the the Bible than any New Testament, anyway, than any other author. We get so much of our knowledge of First Testament, of Second Testament history from him. We get so much of our knowledge of the Jesus movement, the thing that he started from him. And so we're going to spend a few months going through those two books, one after another. And in Luke, we're going to focus not on the whole book, but we're going to pick out every time Jesus sits at a table. I gave you this story last week about my parents' table that I experienced growing up. It always had room for somebody else to be added to it. They had this great big piece of wood that they would fit over the top of the table that it would expand and make room for more. And I just long to see a Jesus people that says, our goal is to make room for more. It's to expand that table, to reach out to people that don't know, that haven't heard the story, to share what we have with those people around us. And so this is where the idea of build a bigger table came from. There's this idea that when Jesus sits at the table, sometimes he sits with friends, sometimes with enemies, sometimes with people he knows well, sometimes with people he's never met before. But so often it is a trance 
transformative experience. My prayer for us as a group of people is that we would become people like him, that we would invite people to our table, and we would see life change happen at that table. So our takeaway from week one was, is your table available? The, the, the gathering spaces that you have, whether it's on your deck, whether it's in your actual living, in, in your dining area, is it available for other people to gather at? And this week, we're going to push it a little bit further. We're going to read a challenging passage, expect to go away, feeling like Jesus has maybe messed with you just a little bit, asked some deep questions of you. We're in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. For those of you that have a paper Bible or an electronic Bible that you like to sort of reference, I'm just going to read this passage. You can follow along. It won't come up on the screen yet, but we'll go back through it bit by bit, and we'll get to grips with what Jesus has to say. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two, whim, two people owned money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let us pray. God, as we open this book that you have given us, we believe that you breathed on it. It comes alive. It speaks to us. It challenges us and changes us. We believe that you come into this space where we are. You afflict the comfortable and you comfort the afflicted. Wherever we are in those groups of people, may you do the work in us that you long to do. May we listen for your voice. Those outside of the church, new to the church, those long-term members, whoever we are, challenge us and change us. You breathed on this book and it came alive. Would you breathe on us and make us alive in new ways? Amen. So to catch you up with where we've been, we started with Luke, and I wanted to give you an introduction to just what is the heartbeat of this book. What does Luke say that is the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry? And what we see is this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In Luke's understanding, Jesus came to bring good news to a group of people that were not used good news, that there was very little good to say about Luke and Acts as these two books together. There's two giant surprises, two big surprises that Luke is wrestling with. The first surprise is this. It's that Jesus died. 
Jesus wasn't supposed to die in most first century Jewish understanding. A Messiah figure, a Savior should come, and he should set the world to rights, but he should do it through action, not through death. Death is a defeat. It was a surprise when Jesus died, and an even bigger surprise when he came back to life again. So Luke wrestles with that first surprise. Jesus died? And then he came back to life. What, what does that mean? But, but this second surprise that is consistent throughout this Luke Acts text, it's the inclusion of the outsider. We saw last week how Jesus took those on the margins, a tax collector called Levi. He pulls him in and says, Levi, you're going to be part of God's story. The margins, the edges of the story are going to move closer to the center. Jesus reaches out to those that find themselves on the fringes, find themselves left out and pulls them in. And that was a surprise. When we get to Acts, it will be an even bigger surprise to a Jewish community when the Gentiles start getting included as well. And the question might be phrased, just how big is this table going to get? Just how big will it get? We'll wrestle with that with today's text as we watch, as Jesus interacts with someone who maybe is a level a step beyond where Levi was. Maybe he's even more unacceptable than we might say that Levi was. Jesus will constantly reach out to this group of people, this idea of the poor, the downtrodden, those who find themselves on the margins. Jesus will begin to pull them in. And so to catch you up to speed, after this passage that we looked at last week, Jesus has gone around and he has taught some of the 12 disciples that he has pulled in. Each of them kind of ragtag, don't fit, not really acceptable. He takes them and he teaches them on a plane. He teaches them many of the things that we would describe as his way. So we talk about living in the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus here at South. That's exactly what he teaches them. This is how I go about doing everyday life. And you get to copy me in doing that. He teaches them how to pray. They say, Jesus, teach us to pray. We don't know. We, we're still learning. And he teaches them word by word how to pray. And what we find is constantly he's doing things amongst this group called the poor. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, what we read is this. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain. Now, to understand the significance of Nain is to understand that it is insignificant. Nain is Iowa. It's Iowa. It's a place that you drive through on the way to somewhere else. I actually enjoy driving through Iowa, to be fair. It reminded me of, of England. It's got those wavy hills. It was far better than Nebraska, which uh, there's nothing good to say about. And, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Jesus stops in a place that people didn't usually stop at for any purpose other than resting or getting food. It was a pilgrim journey on the way to Jerusalem. People would go from some of these larger towns and cities and stop there just as a breather. Let me get some, some nutrients, and then I'll continue my journey. Perhaps we might say this, that when Jesus said, I came for the poor, it's not just the micro level of the individuals. Perhaps he came for those cities, those towns that were left out of the general sort of sway of things as well. And he lands in this place, not just briefly, but for some time. And during his time there, an incredible event happens. There is a funeral procession. Again, not so incredible that there will be a funeral. But what happens at the funeral is incredible. This is Jesus' interaction with the funeral experience. He went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on. The bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Hold on to that phrase. That phrase is important. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared amongst us, they said. God has come to help his people. 
This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country, as it usually does when somebody comes back from the dead. This story would have thrown people back to another, an older story. There's a story in a historical book called First Kings. If you like references, 1723 is your reference, your address. Elijah, an old famous prophet, picked up the child, another dead child, and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him back to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. This language symmetry would have been unmistakable to a first century person who understood the history of the Bible. This is someone doing the same things Elijah did for a nation, a group of people that had said for 400 years, there has been no voice of God, there has been no presence of God, everything else has gone wrong. There's this sort of idea that, wow, things are starting to turn. We're about to turn this sucker around. We're, we're going to get this thing going. This is exciting. A prophet is on the scene again. This is good news. And so understandably, when things like this are happening, religious people are interested. So we read in the start of our text today, Luke 7, verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Jesus is an expected guest who this Pharisee, and we'll look a little bit later about what exactly a Pharisee is, this Pharisee finds Jesus to be acceptable. He is excited to pull Jesus into his house. He wants to ask him some questions. There's going to be this somewhat of a debate, maybe. Luke follows this Greek style called symposia. So usually there's a dinner, there's a sitting down at a table, and then there's a, a healthy, hearty discussion that takes place afterwards. And that's exactly the framework we'll see here. Jesus is an expected guest. And then there's a twist. And let me approach that twist by asking you this. Have you ever had an unexpected guest? Have you ever had someone who's just turned up, arrived on the doorstep and said, in essence, feed me, find me a place to stay? Have you ever had that experience? A few months ago, a friend sent me a text. It was just a screenshot of a map and it just looked like this. The red dot is my house. And the white dot was, well, apparently there's a Chipotle there, but I didn't know really what else. And I was left with this question, wait, are you guys in town? Because these friends live in Michigan. And let me add, these are just the sort of people that would turn up unexplained, unexpected, and think that was really funny just to just appear on the doorstep. So I'm left like, uh, wait, are you, guys, are you guys here? Now, usually that would just be exciting. I, a couple of really close friends, I would be excited to have them stay, but it just so happened we had somebody else staying that weekend as well. So I was suddenly trapped in this moment of, where do we put everybody? If they turn up, who do we ask to go and stay somewhere else? Some very close friends that we've spent a lot of time with over the last few years. A guy, on the other hand, that was one of my groomsmen at my wedding. He now lives in Houston. These two groups of people, and I'm trying to figure out, who do I call and say, do you want to put someone up for a couple of nights? Who do I reject? Who do I push away? Maybe you've had that experience of an unexpected guest. But it becomes even more complicated when the unexpected guest doesn't behave as you would want a guest to behave. What if someone that's unexpected, who you have a history with, then behaves in all of the ways you would expect this person to behave? What if they live down to your worst expectations of what good behavior look like? What if it's the 
kind of crazy uncle that you feel like you have to keep inviting to weddings, but he just keeps drinking too much wine and dancing on tables shirtless, and it's just getting embarrassing. And every time you throw out an olive branch, you're like, could we have some respectable behavior? Yet time and time again, this person does exactly what you expect them to do. This is what I would suggest is happening as we get into the roots of this passage, because this Pharisee invites Jesus, but Jesus brings with him all of the things that we find that Jesus continues wonderfully to bring. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, the assumption there was that she'd had multiple husbands, that she was an adulteress or that she was a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So I just want to look for a second at the juxtaposition of Pharisee and this woman that appears, because that's really relevant for how we understand the story. The Pharisees had one of four approaches to how they dealt with this big problem in Jewish society. The Romans had invaded, they had taken over everything. Many Jewish people were asking questions like, how do we fix how do we fix the big problem? How do we address the Roman problem? So when we ask the question, who were these Pharisees, their whole approach kind of gives us the, the details, the lowdown on exactly who they are. So one group, the Sadducees, their, their philosophy, their policy on the Romans was, well, let's appease them. Let's try not to let them bother us too much. We get the temple. We have this place that we get to do worship. So long as we get that, well, we're good, right? And if we mess with the Romans too much, then they'll come in in force, they'll really take over, and, and that's not going to be good for anybody. So let's just, let's just hold off. It's like the, the British ap uh, approach to Hitler early on in the Second World War. Didn't work well for us, didn't work well for them. So that's the Sadducees. Then you've got the Zealots. These are some of Jesus' group, and there's some pretty strong evidence that some of these guys were hoping Jesus would go down this line. Let's gather some guys, let's get some swords, and we'll fix the problem ourselves. Let's go and, and we're going to go and make this sort of, we're going to get rid of this problem. Sadducees, zealots, different approaches. Another group called the Essenes, their, their approach was, we've got to get out of here. Let's go and hide somewhere. Let's go into the desert. We'll pray a lot. We'll ask that God would come fix the situation somehow. But we're going to keep ourselves very distinct, very separate. We're going to back up. And then finally, this fourth group, the Pharisees. Well, they wanted to resist. They, wa they wanted to make sure they were standing up to the Romans on some level, but not in an obvious way, not with swords, not with any sort of practical approach. They were like, if we just obey the law really, really well, if we make sure we're a group of people that are keeping that right way of living, well, God's going to bring his presence back, and that will fix the problem. That's their general approach. Live the right life. Show that your lives have changed. Live life change, and then God will come, and he'll be faithful. If we do all of this, then God will eventually do his part. So as a good Pharisee, your approach was this. Stay away from people that aren't doing that. Keep yourself separate. Make sure you live the right kind of life. God will ultimately, well, he'll be faithful. And so when a Pharisee invites Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, I think you think the same way as me. You seem to live the right kind of life. I'm pretty impressed with what I've seen. Come to dinner because you fit. And then someone turns up who doesn't fit and does this. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
Now to us, we've got a little bit westernized. We read this passage basically with 2,000 years of history. And what we might read is this. Wow, she did a really nice thing for Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? She came into the room and she, she put perfume on his feet. And this is, this is just her showing her emotion and it's genuine and all those kind of things. That would not be a first century reaction. To a first century Jewish person who's trying to live the right kind of life, what they see is this. Here is a woman that we know lives a sinful life, and she's now here doing all the things I would expect her to do. For a woman to let her hair down in public in the first century was an equivalent today of going around topless or something like that. It's hard to put in terms for you just how stark that would have been. You did not let your hair down in public to use it to rub and wipe and massage someone's feet was certainly ambiguous. To a guy watching this, he's like, what is going on here? Not only has she turned up, but she's turned up and she's acting like this. This is her living down to my low expectations. This is what I would have expected of her, and this is why we do not invite people like her into good and common society. Her actions are at best ambiguous, but actually the the most obvious reading to a first century religious leader would be, I cannot believe she would come and do all of these things. She's infecting a good, honest, religious party with all of the things she is bringing here. He would have been outraged. Furious, especially because, for the most part, wealthy people that would throw dinner parties, they would live kind of in, in public life. Most of the dinner or dining space would open out into public area. And so everybody that walked past would see this woman doing these things at his house. And as a Pharisee, he's like, I just can't have that. There is something that she's doing that is going to impact me. And you understand this because you have lived the idea of infection for the last year and some number of months. I read this list of all the things that originally we were told we were supposed to do to make sure we didn't get COVID in our house. So some of you might be still doing these things, that's fine. Some of you, I know you, you never did these things and that's fine as well. You gotta know your people, you rebels. This was the original idea, right? To make sure that the shopping doesn't do damage to the house. Wipe down the cart. Commit to what you are buying. Don't put anything back on the shelf. Plan what you will buy for at least two weeks of food to, minimize, to reduce minimize exposure. Once you leave the store, throw away gloves and sanitize your hands before you touch the door handle of your car and enter your car. If possible, do not bring your groceries straight into the house. Consider holding non-perishable items in your garage, breezeway, porch, or car for three days. That's a lot of time. Prepare a table or counter to receive grocery items by sanitizing it with a standard disinfectant and divide the table or counter space into the dirty side and to the clean side. So some of you did this and it's fine if you did this. Some of you are still doing it. It's fine if you're still doing it. Some of you thought it was ridiculous and it's fine if you thought it was ridiculous. But regardless, we have been told what that language of infection is. Don't bring this thing into your home. Take Lysol and wipe down bags of chips for the first time in your life because that will make you safer. It's been a different world that we have lived in. And if it works, great. And again, not the whole point. Pharisees would have understood the language of infection well. To give you another way of understanding this, I brought you my laundry. Um, So, 
Now, my wife was very clear, do not make it look like I'm bad at doing laundry. So I was like, I don't even know what that sermon would look like. <laughs> my wife's terrible at doing laundry, look at this. That would not have looked good for me at all. But I brought you some laundry. What I did is I just picked up random shirts to help you understand how a Pharisee's mind would have worked in this dinner party arrangement. So I just have a bunch here. This one is one that I got for free, and it's actually a woman's extra large, and my wife insists it doesn't fit me, and she's probably accurate. Um, that, that might be clean. This is one that somebody sent me uh, mistakenly. It's an extra, extra large, a size that doesn't exist in England and doesn't fit me uh, either. This is a shirt that I wore to a wedding yesterday. I got to go to a Burundi wedding or a couple that come to the church. It was a ton of fun. I was the only one that gave a speech in English. The rest was all in Burundi. And I have never enjoyed not understanding as much as I enjoyed it. It was fascinating. It was wonderful. It's like this experience of pure joy, and I have no clue what was said. I said to Joe afterwards, what did they say? And they said, he said, they just repeated you. <laughs> they just said what you said in Burundi. I was like, I'm quite flattered, really. So that one was worn yesterday. Uh, this one was the one I wore cycling and managed to make its way onto the floor. Probably one of the kids. I would never do something like that. I uh, always put stuff in the laundry basket and make sure it's in the right place. But that one definitely isn't clean. Um, so don't go near that one. Uh, a workout shirt somewhere in here. I haven't worked out much since I've been in Colorado, uh, but that one's pretty clean. Uh, this one I wore when I got back from the wedding. I just changed clothes briefly, probably fairly clean. Uh, and this one definitely hasn't been worn. And this one definitely hasn't been worn. And then just for good measure, there's a South Fellowship shirt. You can have one of these and show it off to the world around you, you know, just a little marketing plug. That one is clean. Now, depending on your comfort level, you would say different things about these shirts. I would go to them and sniff them and make sure that they were somewhat clean before maybe putting them back in a drawer or sending them to the laundry basket. I do not suggest that you would come and sniff them because that would be dangerous, but there are some that are clean and can be worn again. There are some that are dirty and need to be washed. Yet, if you have the right level of sensitivity, you might say something like this. By nature of mingling in with the dirty shirts, the clean shirts are now no longer clean. By nature of what the infection looks like, you have had those shirts sitting in the same basket. You need to wash them all. Were I to give you these shirts and say, hey, here's some free shirts, I would definitely recommend that you wash them all before wearing them, just out of chance that I actually wore them for longer than I remember. But, but this pile of clean and unclean to a certain person with the right level of hygiene would say, no, there's not clean and unclean. They are just all unclean. That The infection has already happened. They have mixed with the unclean shirts. Now, that tells you a chunk about what you need to know, a chunk about what you need to know about Pharisees in the first century Jewish world. Mixing together was like infection. You did not mix with people that were unclean, that weren't keeping all the rules, because that impacted you, that affected you, that infected you. So when Simon the Pharisee says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. He can't be a prophet in Simon's mind because if he was, he would know who she was and she would know the effect that was having on him 
and the effect that was having on Simon and the effect that was having on the whole gathering. Simon believes he knows her story and, and her story affects Jesus. You might even say, you might even go as far as to say her story infects Jesus. Everything that she brings to that room changes the experience of the room. Jesus is infected by her. Simon is infected by her, unless he does the right thing and makes sure to push her away very publicly and very clearly and say, I do not tolerate her. I do not accept her. She is unacceptable. That is exactly what is going on in this passage. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. There's some delightful irony going on there because Simon is now convinced Jesus cannot be a prophet and yet Jesus is being one right in front of him. He knows exactly what Simon is thinking and he's about to reveal the whole thing to him. Jesus will function exactly as a prophet even though Simon is not prepared for that fact. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus moves into his favorite form of teaching, of parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. To give you sort of a frame of reference, one day's wages were about a denarii. So you're talking about 500 days of pay. Median salary in Colorado right now, what, 70,000, 80,000? You're talking about a chunk of money. Now, which of them, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. A parable in its nature is designed to mess with you. It's designed to present a bunch of characters and then ask you to answer, where do I fit into this? The Hebrew word for parable, the Hebrew version of parable, is, is a, a story form called Marshall. So there's a famous one in the Old Testament. A guy called Nathan, a king, acts, out, acts in a way that wasn't deemed acceptable. A prophet turns up at his doorstep and tells him a story. A certain man in a town had many sheep, was very rich. Some unexpected guest comes to stay with him. And in that moment, he says, I need to feed him. He goes down to his neighbor, steals the neighbor's one small lamb that he owns and treats like a child, kills it, feeds his guest. And Nathan says, what do we do? What, what, what's the outworking of this? David responds, well, we kill the man. This is unacceptable behavior. And Nathan, in this beautiful twist, looks at David and says, well, you're the man. It's you. The story asks you to wrestle and place yourself within the story's context. It leaves you in that tension. And if you don't do the hard work, you can walk away and say, that was a pretty cute story that somebody told. I kind of liked it. But if you wrestle with it, it can become deeply challenging. Simon seems to have the intellect to be able to understand the story and understand what's proper, just like David. But he hasn't yet made the jump as to where he fits in with this story. And Jesus is going to give him a helping hand. He turned towards the woman, Jesus turned towards the woman, and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus takes her, unambig her ambiguous actions and reads them in the best light possible. 
while at the same time saying to Simon, think about how you treated me. Because Simon has referred to Jesus as teacher. He's used all of these titles that suggest he honors Jesus. And yet his actions have said he does the very opposite. Common courtesy would say that when a guest arrived at your door, you washed their feet or provided a servant to do it. The roads were dusty. They were dirty. There was all sorts of things on the road. And when you turned up at a dinner party, you reclined on a sofa and ate. Your feet were right up against somebody else's chest. And and to think that you would want to sit there for hour after hour with feet covered in all sorts of things from the street, nobody wanted to do that. And yet, this is what Simon has asked of Jesus. He's insulted him while calling him teacher. There would be a tradition of giving a kiss to a guest of honor, and yet Simon hasn't done this. An oil was a sign of anointing, sign of authority, something you might do for an important person, a teacher. Simon has done none of these things. He said he honors Jesus, and he has allowed Jesus to be dishonored. While claiming to honor Jesus, Simon has broken fundamental rules of social interaction. He's been deeply insulting. And I love the humility of Jesus in this story, that Jesus has sat through this and not said a word about it. Until this point, Jesus has let this gone unobserved. He's simply taken the treatment that he received. What an incredible statement of his character, his ability to operate in the world. Do you see this woman, is the question that he asks Simon. And the truth is, Simon doesn't see her, at least not really. He thinks he sees certain things about her character. He thinks that he knows her story. But the truth is, Simon only sees her surface story and has missed how Jesus affects her story. There is some story, some backstory that Luke doesn't give us insight to. At some point, it seems that Jesus and this woman have interacted, and we're only left to imagine exactly what that interaction looked like. But we see there's this idea, therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven. What we are seeing here is the outworking of an experience of Jesus that has left her incredibly changed. The only thing that makes her actions unambiguous is the tears. The other things could be misread in the, with the, the wrong heart, the wrong attitude, and yet the tears speak to something about her life that has changed deeply. There is some encounter with Jesus that has left her on this new road, this new discovery. And we might imagine that it looked something like this passage in John chapter 8. It's probably not the same woman. Geography is fairly off. They're in different places. But we read in John chapter 8, verse 3, the teachers of the, religion, of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made a stand before the group. They humiliated her in front of everybody by making a stand up and explaining just what she'd done and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked a woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
This is a story that may well be similar to this woman's experience of Jesus, but something has happened that says to a new life is possible. She has received forgiveness, and now she is outpouring her experience of that forgiveness to the, the Jesus that has offered it. It connects back, right, to Simon, the parable Simon's received. Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. She is right in that moment. I have been forgiven so much. But at this table, at this gathering, there is a fundamental disagreement at the table as to who gets to experience God's presence. Remember each of those groups we talked about. They're all talking about how do we bring God's presence back to this nation? How do we make things good again? How do we get rid of the Romans? And everyone has different ideas about how it happens. But there's a fundamental disagreement as to who gets to experience God's presence and what they need to do to experience it. Simon believes God's presence follows life change. Jesus seems to suggest that God's presence can and should, and that's the wrong precede. Um, precede no, it's not. Life change. I messed up one of the slides somewhere. There's this idea that Jesus says the presence happens first. There's some experience of God that you were invited into, and that will change everything. And yet Simon says just the opposite. And I wonder, in the Western church, how do we approach this? I would suggest that often we develop this idea that says this. I would like to see you behave in a particular way. And when I see your behavior looking in a particular way, when I see you following a list of rules, well, then I'll be willing to accept that you believe what you say you believe about Jesus and the way that the world works. And finally, when I'm convinced that you believe what you believe, well, then you get to belong. Then the doors open and there's a place at the table for you. That seems to be how Simon operated, and that's how I would suggest a chunk of the church operates. And yet it seems Jesus operated just the opposite way. To Jesus, you got to belong, you got to sit at the table first. And in sitting with him, in learning from him, in experiencing him, something happened. You became to believe in this Jesus who was just almost too good to be true, who spoke words of life who ultimately would go to death and resurrection. And in being with him, something changed about what you believed. And only after your beliefs changed, did your behavior change. We want to see particular actions come first, and yet to Jesus, it was just the opposite. We want to see, behave, believe, and then belong. And yet Jesus was comfortable with belong, and then believe, and then behave last of all. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is really his words. He's really speaking these words, not for her. She has already heard this. He's really speaking it for the group of people that are listening. She is acceptable. She has been forgiven. She has been pulled back into proper society, not because she has done anything to deserve it, but simply because the God of the universe has chosen to forgive her because he is good. She is fine, acceptable, good, all of those different things. She is clean in the language of the shirts simply because he has said that of her. She's done nothing to deserve it, just like you and I. Jesus believes new stories happen at the table. Simon believes new stories precede, not proceed, precede the table. It's all a matter of where you think the action happens first. Does it happen with you or does it happen with God? So here's the difficult question, the classic parable question for us to embrace. Which character do you identify with? Which character do you identify with? Perhaps you identify with the woman before she experiences Jesus. 
Perhaps you would own up to a life that seems kind of broken at the moment. Perhaps you would say, I've been deeply successful. I have all these good things to talk about, and yet I feel like there's something missing. There's something that I keep chasing after. Maybe there's some sort of part of your story that you're like, what's the answer to this? What's next? You're invited into this table, not because of anything that you have done, simply because the God of the universe loves you and came for you and died for you and rose again. He invites you into his story. Maybe you identify with the woman after her encounter with Jesus. Maybe you talk about this deep love that you have for him. Maybe there's this experience of, wow, I have been forgiven so much, but you're wrestling with how you're treated by those that seem like the insiders. Maybe there's still a way that you feel like you don't fit, that your character isn't quite acceptable, that the suspicion based on some of your history, maybe you're struggling to find a seat at the table, and the message for you seems to be that, no, you are welcome in here. This table is for you. But I wonder if the challenge point for many of us is that we don't at times identify more with Simon. I wonder if we start off identifying with this unnamed woman, and yet so often broken sinners that find Jesus turn quickly into Pharisees. When we start to find that other people maybe don't deserve a place at the table, maybe we find reasons that they shouldn't get a second chance and a fifth chance and a ninth chance. Maybe the grace of God seems like it should run out at some point. Maybe we start off like her, the woman. Maybe we end up like Pharisees. I know I've wrestled with that tension in my own heart. Who is acceptable here? Do you believe the right things? Is your theology correct? All of those different things. And yet Jesus sits at this table and seems fairly unconcerned with that. He seems to invite in those that find themselves on the fringes. The truth is we don't always get to pick the parable we're living, but we get to pick who we are in the parable. Is it the woman? Is it Simon? the Pharisee. And maybe the stretch for us is this. Maybe the challenge for us is this. How do we get to go out into our everyday lives and not reflect those characters, but reflect Jesus? How do we get to play Jesus' part in this parable that sees the table as this place where people might find acceptance, might find belonging, might come to believe in who Jesus is, and might come to see life change happen? Maybe that's the challenge point for us. Maybe we need to drop some of our language of infection, of dirty, of unclean, of who fits. And maybe we need to invite those into our tables, into our spaces that don't find themselves in the center of the story, that find themselves on the margins. My wife and I had this somewhat hilarious encounter some years ago. We were vacationing in California And we ended up staying in Malibu for the night. We found an Airbnb. It was a beautiful place. I got you a couple of pictures here. It was this Spanish-style villa with this beautiful rock pool. And so we went off into the mountains. Uh, And the couple that we stayed with seemed intriguing. The lady said in her bio, 70 years old, mainly retired. I just ride horses now. My husband's 75. He mainly writes. And and that's how we live our lives, up in the mountains in Malibu. And so it turned out she was English, and we got there. She made me a delightful English cup of tea, and we, we got to talking about different things. And her husband, who had been sick, came downstairs, and, and he sat down with us at the table. And I said, so, Sue says you're a, you're a writer. Yep. I was like, okay. Um, have you written anything recently? Yep, just finished a project. And I'm a little bit confused, and I'm a question asker by nature, in case you haven't noticed. So I'm like, well, hold on a second. Every other writer I know, I know a few different writers, once you get them started talking about their books, they never shut up. Like, they literally go on about them forever and ever. And here's a writer that won't talk about his writing. Um, 
And, and I'm trying to put this delicately. It turns out he wrote things that were designed for adults and not for children, and that he had the biggest network of these writings and pictures and different things in the country. And so we're left with this awkward moment of, oh my goodness, what are we doing? In what, what is this place? I think automatically our natural reaction goes to infection. What's going to happen to me for being here? Like a, a lightning bolt's going to hit me on the road on the way down? This, this is like this den of sin that we've ended up in. And what is the result that comes out of this? That's the Pharisee response, right? I think the real reaction was supposed to be what effect could be had here? Because the, the Jesus story says this. You are made in God's image. And that in coming to know Jesus and walking into relationship with him, the spirit of God lives in you. That wherever you go, you bring life and you bring new stories and new possibilities. And wherever you go, that is true. It doesn't matter if it's this weird palatial house in Malibu with a couple of people that definitely find themselves on the margins of society. The truth is, whatever you, wherever you go, you take light. And you take life, and that is who you are made to be. Whatever table you sit at, you are not infected. You get to affect change. You get to change the narrative and bring new stories. So my final question for, this, for us as we move into a time of worship, are you willing to look underneath the surface story and see new stories at your table? Who will you invite into the spaces that you have? Will it be people that are like you? Or will it be people that wrestle with their own brokenness, who are trying different stories, who have so much history that they're carrying so much baggage that they don't know if they can ever belong? Will you invite in people that have tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed? Will you invite in those that don't fit in nice spaces? Will you allow God to continue to use your table to bring about new stories in this world? Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrestle with this parable, you always ask us to do the hard work. That's the process, I guess, of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Perhaps we feel broken. We feel like the woman before she experiences you we, with all our stories all our hurt, all the ways we think we've been successful and yet really it's not just enough. You ask us to run towards you. Maybe we find ourselves as she is after she encounters you, still unacceptable to most, still struggling to find our place at the table. And yet you speak those good words over us. You are forgiven. Maybe we'd own to being like Simon. Maybe we started off with this deep love and understanding of your forgiveness and just how great it is. And yet we've been able to find other people worse than us. We've been able to spot ways that there's maybe people that they're too far away. They're too far gone. They act out in too many ways. They do exactly as I would expect. They live up to my low expectations of them. Surely there can't be a place for them. And yet you push us to become like you. As one who constantly finds new stories at the table. 
who brings your presence before we expect change, who allows us to belong long before we believe and certainly before we behave. Would we do the hard work this week of wrestling with our place in the story? Would we use our tables as you would use them? Where do we create gathering spaces? Where those on the margins can find themselves in the center of your good news? Wherever we are, would we run to you? The God who loves us, who loves his wandering sheep, who is excited at their return, who celebrates life change, and new stories. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.